If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression. I'm Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm delighted you're joining us this week. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Pence for president. On the day his former boss is arraigned in federal court, I'm sitting down with former Vice President Mike Pence to discuss his bid for the presidency, the state of the Republican Party, and of course, Donald Trump. Last week, Pence launched his campaign for the GOP nomination in next year's presidential primary with a stinging assault on the man he served loyally for four years until their administration ended in the chaos and ignominy of January the 6th, 2021. Former Vice President told the crowd at his Iowa rally that, on that day, Trump, quote, demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. I chose the Constitution, and I always will. At the same time, of course, Pence is running in part on the record of the Trump administration. Tax cuts and economic growth, tough measures against illegal immigration, an America-first foreign policy, especially taking on China. But of course, Pence wants to convey his own brand of conservatism to Republican voters too, and distinguish himself from the growing Republican field. But for now, of course, the party's politics, and indeed the nation's, are consumed with the spectacle of the first former president ever to be arraigned on federal charges. Trump was charged today with 37 counts, alleging the unlawful retention of defense and national security documents, as well as obstructing the government's investigation. So inevitably, the specter of the former president will haunt Mike Pence's campaign. And former Vice President Mike Pence joins me now. Mr. Pence, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Oh, you bet, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. You launched your campaign for president last week, and I want to get into a lot of the topics and a lot of the mess, the message and the policies, the issues you want to campaign on. But we're recording this Tuesday afternoon. In the last hour or so, your former boss, the former president, Donald Trump, has been arraigned on federal charges. You've had a chance now to read the indictment that the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, brought down. Tell us what you think of the charges. Well, first, let me just say is it's a core American principle of our justice system that every American is entitled to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. It's also a core principle that no one is above the law. And I have had the opportunity to read the indictment uh, that was filed. I can't defend what's alleged. These are serious allegations. And the handling of, of classified materials, as I learned in my years as vice president and my years on the Foreign Affairs Committee, is a very serious matter that bears upon the national security of the United States. You know, as the uh, father and father-in-law of, of two men that currently serve in the armed forces of the United States, I will never diminish concerns over uh, the handling of classified materials. I mean, if the documents that are were alleged to be in the president's possession, uh, describing defense capabilities of our country, uh, potential vulnerabilities to the United States or our allies. If these materials had ever inadvertently made their way in the hands of foreign interests, it would jeopardize the security of our country as well as the safety and security of our armed forces. That being said, President Trump is entitled to his day in court, and I'm going to listen with great interest to uh, his defense and will render any judgment 
about this matter after the president has had the opportunity to make his case. But but I, I will tell you, Jerry, I, I lived through years of politicization at the Department of Justice, and I share the concern of millions of Americans about the way politics has played a hand, whether it be when Hillary Clinton was exonerated in 2016 for essentially engaging in exactly the kind of behavior the president Trump is accused of here two and a half years of the Russia hoax that we now know from the Durham report should never even have been initiated. And and one instance after another, I think like millions of Americans, I've lost confidence in the leadership of the Department of Justice. And so um, should I have the great privilege of serving as president of the United States? I've made it clear we're going to clean house at the highest levels at the Department of Justice. And, and we're going to find men and women who will be respected by both political parties to take those positions who are known to be dedicated to the rule of law, but we simply have to restore public confidence in equal treatment under the law. And this unprecedented indictment of a former president of the United States by the administration of the president who defeated him in the last election and may well face him in the next, I think undermines that sense of uh, equal treatment under the law. And, uh, We'll pay great attention to the facts as they develop, but I I share the concern of millions of Americans about the message this sends in our country and, frankly, around the world. So it sounds as though you're saying, on the one hand, these are serious charges to be made. At the same time, you're saying the justice system has become politicized. So, I mean, what's the balance here? I mean, is this essentially the weaponization of justice by the Biden administration? Or do they have a point that the former president may have done something really serious which jeopardized national security? Well, it, it may be both, Jerry. It may be both. I I don't know. Again, I want to emphasize, I can't defend what has been alleged here, but the president is entitled to his day in court. He's entitled to make his defense, and I want to reserve any judgment about it until he does that. But the fact that for the first time in American history, a former president of the United States faces indictment by the very administration that defeated him for re-election. I, I just think it, it's uh, it, it's deeply troubling to millions of Americans, and I think it argues it argues for a fresh start in this country. I really believe it's one of the reasons I'm running for president of the United States. I think uh, that we need new leadership in the Republican Party and need new leadership in the White House that will uh, restore uh, our country in so many ways, but also restore public confidence in the fair administration of justice. We've got to get politics out of the Department of Justice in its entirety. We know it's been there over the last six years. We know, we've, we've witnessed it. Jerry, I lived it. I lived through all of that in my years as vice president. Uh, the American people are are done with that. They want to see a fresh start. And that's why I've said, well, if I have the privilege of being uh, president of the United States, we'll clean house at the senior level of the Department of Justice and put a team in place that will restore that confidence. You yourself were the subject of a, a very brief investigation over documents that you may have inadvertently or otherwise um, you, you were cleared. I think you cooperated very much so. I think one of the things that maybe distinguishes perhaps the Trump case from yours or indeed from even President Biden's, maybe others, and at least this is obviously part of the charges against him, that actually, far from saying, oh, yes, OK, you know, my fault will, you know, hand over the documents, he did seem to refused to hand over the documents. And then again, if the allegations are correct, if the charges are correct, went so far as to obstruct justice. Isn't that particularly distinguishing in this case? And doesn't it make it particularly concerning that a former president may have actually obstructed the investigators' attempt to restore the documents to the archives? Let me begin with, in all humility, about my experience, Jerry. You know, after I think the fourth disclosure of documents, some of which were reported to have come from his years serving as vice president at the residence in the office of President Biden, I just thought it would be prudent 
to look at the records that we had transferred back to Indiana to ensure that we did not have inadvertently uh, transferred classified documents to our Indiana home. Uh, but when we identified documents that were potentially classified, we immediately contacted the Department of Justice. The FBI was on my doorstep the next day, uh, and we fully cooperated with an investigation that I'm pleased they concluded that it was an innocent mistake uh, that roughly a dozen documents had made their way into my personal records. But Jerry, I want to be clear, it was a mistake. And I took full responsibility for it. Again, the handling of classified documents is a very serious matter in the life of this nation that bears upon our national security. And I, I want to be forthcoming about that. Now, that being said, I, I will tell you that on this issue of equal treatment under the law, where the FBI was on the doorstep of my home in a day, according to press accounts, it took them about 80 days uh, to go to the office or the home of President Biden. And it would be months before the American people would even know that those documents uh, had been uncovered just prior to the midterm election. I think that doesn't smack uh, as equal treatment under the law. And I'm, I hope we'll see the special counsel in the Biden case uh, bring equal vigor uh, to this as they did in my instance and, and obviously as special counsel has with regard to the former president. But look, I, as to your question, as I said, these, these are serious allegations. And um, I cannot defend what is alleged to have occurred, but I want to emphasize that when we look at an indictment, it, it's only one side of the story. It's the government's side of the story. The very nature of grand juries is that there is no opportunity to uh, present a defense. So we'll want to be very respectful of the president's right to make his defense to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with former Vice President Mike Pence on his campaign for the Republican nomination. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm talking with former Vice President Mike Pence. Now, of course, a candidate for the Republican nomination for next year's presidential election. So let's talk about your campaign. You launched it last week and you've been doing a series of events since then. Give us, if you would, your what your central message to Republican voters is. You've served for four years as vice president in the Trump-Pence administration, which many people regard as successful in many ways, certainly in terms of some of the economic achievements. Are you running essentially to revive the successes, the achievements of that administration? Or do you think that, that there's a lot of debate at the moment about conservative, about what conservatism is, and you've been a, a leading conservative for a long time. Is it time to redefine conservatism? What's your approach to, what's the message you're giving to Republican voters? Well, I'm running for president because I think this country's in a lot of trouble. President Joe Biden and the Democrats have, have weakened America at home and abroad. We have war raging in Eastern Europe. We have uh, Chinese provocations across the Asia Pacific almost on a daily basis, all as a result of the weak and feckless foreign policy of the Biden administration. And here at home, their war on energy 
uh, their open borders uh, policies, the massive COVID spending that was unnecessary and has unleashed uh, inflation at a 40-year high. All these things have created one crisis after another. They're all man-made, and that man's name is Joe Biden. And I'm running because not just because of my years as vice president in an administration that revived our economy, supported our military, achieved peace across the wider world, secured our border, and appointed conservatives to our courts at every level, but also because I was a governor and I was a leading conservative in the Congress of the United States. And I think this is a moment that demands that we bring forward men and women in leadership who have the experience and uh, the background on day one to begin to turn this country around. And uh, I will tell you with all humility, I I know that if we were given the privilege of serving as president in the United States on my first day in office, we would be able to assemble a team, a cabinet, bring a Congress uh, with us, bring state houses with us around the country that would turn this country around. So it's a, it's a love for this country, a belief that we're better than what we're seeing in America today, that the application of right principles and staying grounded in those conservative principles is still the pathway forward. But I'll also say one other thing. I think the American people long for our politics to restore a threshold of civility that's been absent long before our administration. It it seems to me that once you get 15 miles out of Washington, D.C., the people in this country actually get along pretty well because the American people are unfailingly respectful of one another. We're a live and let live country. We have our values. We have our ideals bought. We're respectful of our neighbors, treat others the way we want to be treated. But in recent years, and as I say, long before President Trump and I entered the White House, our politics have devolved into an ongoing argument. I think we got to have government as good as our people again. I think the American people want to see us restore a threshold of civility. Doesn't mean you don't fight. Doesn't mean you're not tough. No one would ever accuse me of, of flinching in my commitment to my conservative values. But I've always tried to express those values in ways that's uh, respectful, treats others the way I want to be treated. And I think there's a hunger for that at the highest levels. Do those conservative values uh, involve reducing the significant reduction in the size of the federal government? I'm a limited government conservative, Jerry. (laughs) And I'm someone that uh, believes that we have to do a couple of things in the early going of the next administration. We've got to get the economy moving again. We've got to bring relief to Americans. I mean, The Trump-Pence tax cuts are going to go away in 2025 if we don't have a Congress and a president uh, that will continue them. So I think you keep the policies, you unleash American energy, for heaven's sake, secure the border, end that crisis. But in the next instance, we've got to get the federal debt under control. I think that that will involve entitlement reform that's compassionate and principled, but it also ought to involve a wholesale rethinking of the size and scope of government at the federal level. Look, I'll stipulate our administration could have done a better job controlling domestic spending. We didn't lean into that fight as hard as we should have. But I think, uh, as you know, I heard once a long time ago that you'll be surprised at how much government you'd never miss. And I think we ought to be looking for leadership in this country that's willing to get out the blade, trim back the sails of the federal government. But of course, you and I both know the core of the national debt crisis facing this in future generations is driven by 70% of the federal budget, uh, which is entitlement spending. We don't need to get too much into the weeds of entitlement spending in a discussion like this, but 
Give us a sense, you know, Social Security, Medicare, particularly the growth of Medicare in particular looks explosive, as you say, by any measure over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Give us a sense of what you'd be looking at. Means testing, age eligibility changes. What's on the table for you? I think it's a great question. And I would say what's on the table is what's always been on the table. What was on the table when uh, President Reagan and Tip O'Neill cut a deal that extended the life of Social Security by another 30 years. I mean, there was a gradual increase in the age of retirement. There was changes in the program that people never even noticed because they were phased in over decades. And as we increase the life expectancy happily of the American public, people are living longer, living healthier. My mom just turned 90 and lives on her own. We have room to do that. But I think the first challenge is simply being straight with the American people about the challenges that we're facing in this country. We have a debt the size of our nation's economy for the first time since World War II. Nobody's talking about it. You have 70 members of the Senate, including many Democrats, who are supporting a bill that would simply bring people to the table to talk about entitlement reform, and Joe Biden opposes it. Joe Biden's policy is insolvency. And unfortunately, my former run and makes policy is the same. I was going to say exactly that. Not only Joe Biden, but Donald Trump seems to oppose it. Donald Trump has taken the same position Joe Biden has taken. I think we owe those granddaughters of mine more than that. I think, uh, look, I, I think a careful study of American history shows that every time the American people have been asked to do hard things and had leaders that were willing to explain to them the the need, the challenge, the opportunity in front, the American people always rise to the challenge. And I'm confident they will again. Let's talk about some of the other issues in the campaign. One which is obviously important since the striking down of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court is abortion. Uh, Everybody's very focused on that. Some Republicans are concerned, including I think your former uh, running mate and boss, Donald Trump, that maybe some of the things that are being tried in the states right now, some of the ideas, heartbeat bills, the six-week limit on abortions, are maybe not going to play very well in an electoral environment and maybe not the right thing to do. What's your view? Would you support a national legislation to limit abortion to a certain stage of gestation? Well, Jerry, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. I believe that the cause of life has been the animating core of the conservative movement for 50 years. And I couldn't be more proud to have been vice president in the administration that appointed three of the justices that sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs. But we've been given a new beginning for life in this country, and now is not the time to flinch from advancing the principle of the sanctity of life into the center of American law. Two points. Number one, there's a bit of a misnomer. My former running mate has articulated this, as others in the field have, that somehow this is now a states-only issue. The Supreme Court did not return this to the states. They returned it to the states and the American people. And the American people elect presidents. They elect senators and congressmen. And uh, if I have the privilege of serving as president of the United States, I'll support the efforts at the national level to maybe harmonize America's laws about abortion with, frankly, what most of the European Union is today. In, in most of the EU, abortion is is limited at to 12 or 15 weeks. And there's a 15-week bill that Senator Lindsey Graham has authored. I, I would readily support that. But I also recognize, number two, is that most of this is going to be worked out at the state levels. And again, I, I reject the notion that some measures, including the heartbeat bill, the six-week bill, are, as my former running mate said, you know, too harsh or divisive. Look, Governor Brian Kemp signed a heartbeat bill and he won by 7% against the toughest uh, Democrat candidate in the country. Governor Mike DeWine signed a heartbeat bill. He won Ohio by 20 points. I think if we come at this issue 
with consistency, with compassion, and with principle, we can continue to win hearts and minds around the country. But whatever the future holds for me or my family, we'll, we'll always be standing for the right to life and we'll always be working to that day that we restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law. Some conservatives, as you know, are very concerned about this idea that this could be a power that the federal government could take on through legislation. They don't see that anywhere in the Constitution. You're not concerned about that? You don't think this should be for the states? I think the defense of life, which was the first unalienable right listed in the Declaration of Independence, is a core part of the mission of our government from its inception. And so the notion that the elected representatives of the American people could not be heard on this question, I I would reject. But again, I want to stipulate the greater likelihood is that this gets worked out on a state-by-state basis. And I've said, I've said to fellow travelers in the pro-life movement, I've said it may take us as long to restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law in all 50 states as it took us to overturn Roe versus Wade. But I think the cause of life is the calling of our time. I think a society can be judged by how it deals with its most vulnerable, the aged, the infirm, the disabled, and the unborn. And uh, I'll always I'll always be a champion for the right to life. Let's talk about national security, in particular, the war in Ukraine. As again, as you know, there are many voices in your party, again, uh, including um, to some extent your former boss, President Trump, who are voicing skepticism about the support the U.S. has given to Ukraine, voicing skepticism about uh, whether it's wise in itself, whether it's necessary for the United States, given pressures on the United States at home and abroad. Is this a good use of, of taxpayers' money? And what is the U.S. doing getting itself involved in a dispute between Russia and Ukraine? How do you answer that? The war that's raging in Eastern Europe today is the result of an unprovoked invasion by Russia into Ukraine, an attempt to redraw international lines by force. And I think it's absolutely in the interest of the United States of America to continue to marshal resources as the leader of the free world and to rally our allies to give the Ukrainian military the means to defend themselves, repel the Russian invasion, and restore their sovereignty. I think President Joe Biden has done a terrible job explaining the reasons why we're providing resources to Ukraine. He speaks in broad terms about democracy and defending democracy. Look, we are repelling Russian aggression by supporting the Ukrainian military, and we're preventing the Russian military from overrunning Ukraine and someday being in a position where that Russian military might cross over a border where we would have to send our sons and daughters into harm's way. I mean, if they crossed into Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, or Poland, those are NATO allies. And it would not be whether we were sending troops, we would be sending troops and in that fight. So I think it's in our national interest to give Ukraine what they need today to repel the Russian invasion. And I'll continue to to make that case. But on the flip side, look, we all understand that China is the greatest economic and strategic threat the United States faces. I must tell you, I have met President Xi personally, and I have no doubt in my mind that he is paying careful attention to what's happening in Ukraine. And I think the most effective way to restrain China's militaristic ambitions in the Asia-Pacific is for the West, with under the leadership of the United States of America, to give the Ukrainian military what they need to repel that invasion. That, more than anything else, I think would discourage China's military ambitions, 
with regard to Taiwan or anywhere else in the Asia Pacific. On all these issues, and you're campaigning on these issues, entitlement reform, a staunchly pro-life position, strong assertion of, of U.S. national security interests around the world, and other issues too. You, you sound like a classic conservative, a Ronald Reagan conservative, whatever you want to call it, uh, the kind of message that the Republican Party has been consistently making for the last 30 years or so. But it's almost like the last six or seven years hadn't happened. You've had this kind of roiling debate in the uh, Republican Party. Donald Trump has rejected many of these things. He got nominated last time. He's the front runner this time. Are you kind of rejecting this whole, if you like, this sort of populist revolution that's taken place in in the Republican Party? Do you want to go back to where it was before Donald Trump? Well, I've said to Republicans across the country over the last two years that we need to resist the siren song of populism unmoored to conservative principle. But the record of the Trump-Pence administration was not a rejection of a traditional conservative agenda. We succeeded not because we compromised the agenda, but because we implemented it. We rebuilt our military, uh, largest increased investment in our national defense since the days of Ronald Reagan. And the world was more peaceful as a result. Our armed forces destroyed the ISIS caliphate. And I think the strength the United States showed on the world stage sent the right message to the adversaries of freedom around the world and also facilitated the first peace agreement in the Middle East in 30 years. And here at home, we cut taxes and rolled back regulations and unleashed American energy. We appointed conservatives to our federal courts, including three of the justices that overturned Roe versus Wade. So I I think our administration was a conservative administration. But as I've traveled around the country, I hear voices in our party, including my former running mate, that are beginning to question America's obligations as leader of the free world and arsenal of democracy, to question or to uh, be prepared to ignore our party's historic commitment as the party of fiscal responsibility. And then, as we said before, our commitment to the sanctity of life. And I will tell you that whatever the voices in our party are saying, I'm convinced that the vast majority of the people in our movement still hew to all those core principles and are looking for leadership that's going to build on that foundation to bring America all the way back. In your launch last week in Iowa, you made a speech in which I think you probably surprised some people by coming right out uh, and talking about January the 6th, 2021. And you said on that day, Trump demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. I chose the Constitution. I always will. And you went on, anyone that puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And anyone who asks someone else to put them over the Constitution should never be president again. If the polls are right and the pundits are right and the betting markets are right, and Donald Trump is far and away currently the favorite and gets the Republican nomination, does win the Republican nomination. I know it's a hypothetical. You don't like hypotheticals, but supposing he does, does that mean the Republican Party has become an anti-constitutional party? You know, I I know there's a great interest in the polls and I I recognize uh, the former president has a strong position in the polls today, but I'll be honest with you, Jerry, I, I think that's as much a reflection of how bad President Biden is as it is a particular endorsement of my former running mate. I understand how most Americans, looking at the record of our administration uh, and looking at where America is today with the crisis at our border, with uh, energy prices through the roof, record inflation, with the world at war, I think the overwhelming majority of the American public know it was better under the Trump-Pence administration. And so I, I really do believe that some of the president's support derives from that. I also think it's also a, a reflection of a deep concern about the issue that we began this conversation with and the politicization that people worry about with regard to our justice system today. And uh, at the same time, the justice system seems to be slow walking or looking the other way on uh, misdeeds by President Biden and his family. So I factor all that in. I just, I happen to believe that 
The people of our movement love the Constitution. I thought it was important in our announcement that we address the issue of January 6th head on. Uh, because uh, while I had hoped that uh, President Trump would come around over the last few years and see that he'd been misled, I had no right to overturn the election that day. I mean, states conduct our elections in this country, and once courts review challenges, uh, once the Congress votes on any objections, the only role of the Congress is to open and count. The president has continued to assert that I had the authority to overturn the election. But as I said in my announcement speech, President Trump was wrong then and he's wrong now. And I thought it was important to make that case because I really do believe that our movement and our party must be the party of the Constitution. Look, we've had enough of Democrats trampling on our constitutional rights, talking about packing the court, wanting to take away our Second Amendment freedoms, trampling regularly on the freedom of religion of Americans enshrined in the First Amendment. Our party has to be the party of the Constitution. And I think that begins with producing leadership that's demonstrated to stand on the Constitution, whether it's in our immediate political interest to do so or not. And I'm just convinced as we go forward in this campaign that, and we frame that issue and we frame that fateful day in that way, the people of the Republican Party, independents, and I think a majority of Americans will choose our Constitution. And uh, uh, it'd be my great honor to be their standard bearer to do just that. If you should fall short and if Donald Trump were to be the nominee of the party next year, would you support him? I, I don't think Donald Trump will be the nominee of the Republican but Party. But would you support him? I'm if you running were. because I believe I'm going to be the Republican Party's nominee in 2024. But I will tell you, since I joined the Republican Party uh, during the days of Ronald Reagan, I've always supported our nominee. I'm very confident Republican primary voters are going to choose the right standard bearer for our party. And I, so, as I stand before you today, I'm uh, I believe with all my heart it'll be me. I'm sure you do. But just to be clear, you would support the Republican nominee. Whoever I it is. will support the Republican nominee because I I believe in the principles of the Republican Party and I believe in Republican primary voters. And I know they're going to give us a standard bearer that'll carry forward that conservative agenda that has given not just victories for our party, but great, great victories for the American people over the last 50 years. Former Vice President Mike Pence, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you, Jerry. Great to be on. Well, that's it for us this week. Thanks very much for joining us. Please join us again next week when I'll have another examination of a big issue that's shaping our world. Until then, thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.